One of the first experiences I had with the collegiate was when I walked into Wesley Hall and it smelled old and it has this like old library kind of scent to it. Welcome to Hallowed Halls, a podcast about the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Episode one, first impressions. Walking in to Wesley Hall, I felt like I was in a castle, literally. I would never have been where I am today if it, it were not for the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. Never. It changed my life completely. I, I was so grateful and remain so grateful that it gave me that grounding and that start. I've certainly left part of my heart at, at, in Wesley Hall. The Collegiate needs to be what the world is, but just within the walls of Wesley Hall. That's what the Collegiate needs to be. The Collegiate does reflect the city and the society that it's in. And I'm sure that's always been the case. We're always talked about first impressions. And my first impression was the castle on Portage Avenue. And I used to look at that beautiful building and think, well, I wonder what goes on in there. <laughs> I always knew what Wesley Hall was. Uh, uh, and admired it, obviously, both for its architecture and the way it's so nicely set back from the busy street. I would say that um, Wesley Hall is very well regarded in the city. It's iconic. It represents the University of Winnipeg. Everybody knows it. There's a lot of history in that building, and there's just so much kind of wisdom flowing in and out of those doors. And then, of course, I get the brochure, and I see this Hogwarts-looking building, and I see this brochure, and I'm like, whoa. This is the big leagues. I, I really want to check this out. Those are just a few of the hundreds of students and faculty who have passed through the doors of Wesley Hall, the flagship building of the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. You're tuned in to the first episode of a six-part series about the history, people, and impact of this school. If you haven't already checked it out, there's an intro episode that I recorded with Dean Kevin Clace and Associate Dean Bonnie Talbot that explains a bit more about why we're making this podcast. On this first episode of Hallowed Halls, we're going to be looking at how this building came to exist in downtown Winnipeg, on Portage Avenue, between Spence and Balmoral Streets. As we heard at the top of this episode, first impressions are important, and Wesley Hall leaves a pretty awesome first impression. But what was the first impression that Wesley Hall, and the school it housed, left on the city of Winnipeg, and the land and people around it? The University of Winnipeg Collegiate traces its roots back nearly 150 years to Manitoba College, founded in 1871, and Wesley College, founded in 1888. It was that second school that Wesley Hall was built for in the 1890s. But of course, the history of the land the Collegiate currently occupies goes back much further than that. Before we get into the establishment of Wesley College and Wesley Hall, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the history of this land. Most people who have gone to a public event in Winnipeg in recent years have probably heard this land acknowledgement. Here is U of W President Annette Trimby at the State of the University Address in 2018. Uh, before I begin, I do want to acknowledge that the University of Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 land in the heart of the Métis Nation. Making this acknowledgement is a positive step towards reconciliation, but it's just a small step in a long journey to get where we need to be. Now, what are the other steps in this long journey that President Trimby is referencing? 
Unfortunately, that is not the subject of this podcast, but it's a question that I want us to keep in the back of our minds as we explore the history of the school. And it's interesting to note that Treaty 1, the treaty referenced in these land acknowledgements that covers Winnipeg and surrounding areas in southern Manitoba, was signed in 1871, the same year as Manitoba College was founded. And the text of this treaty signed between the Crown and the Anishinaabe and Swampy Cree nations states that Indigenous communities surrendered their territories in exchange for annual payments and material goods. However, it remains a controversial treaty today. The Anishinaabe viewed the treaty negotiations as the beginning of a respectful, reciprocal, and ongoing relationship with Canada that would be constantly fostered, redefined, re-examined, and renegotiated as conditions shifted, writes historian Owen Taves in his 2018 book, Stolen City. Taves cites Anishinaabe Métis scholar Amy Kraft, who writes that the Anishinaabe did not surrender their land in the Treaty 1 negotiations. It was not in their power to do so, as they did not own it. Kraft explains that Anishinaabe elders view Treaty 1 as a sharing treaty. Let us be clear that sharing, she writes, did not mean giving up land and resources, but rather it meant using the land and resources together. Nevertheless, as has been documented by numerous commissions and testimonials in recent years, Indigenous communities have not always benefited from Canada's prosperity and wealth, and in many cases have been harmed by settler colonial projects and policies. This effect, of course, is also felt in our schools. I think when you're talking about the graduation gap, it would be with many schools, it could be inner city schools or even in some rural communities, just students from indigenous backgrounds, lower socioeconomic standing, uh, maybe newcomers to Canada, aren't graduating at the same rates that students in other communities would be. That's Ian Elliott, the director of the Model School, a program at the Collegiate that is trying to close the graduation gap. And here's Iraq Levasseur, a student in the model school. There's a divide for sure. And I know it's because we are inner city and we are indigenous. And at the collegiate, there's a lot of, you know, non-indigenous people. You know, the topics in class that would come up, you know, like residential school or any anything along the indigenous subject, they kind of like look over at you. We'll hear from both Ian and Iraq and learn more about the model school later in this podcast series. But turning our attention now back to Treaty 1, after that treaty was signed, Canada worked hard to attract white immigrants to the region, encouraging settlement in the new province of Manitoba. One of those settlers was the Woodsworth family, which brings us back to the topic of this podcast episode. James Shaver Woodsworth was one of the earliest graduates of Wesley College and would go on to become an influential figure in Canadian politics. He um, was the son of a very important father. I think we have to say that to begin with. This is Alan Mills a retired political science professor from the University of Winnipeg who has studied Woodsworth's life and legacy. The family came uh, to Portage la Prairie in 1882, and in 1885, James, the father, uh, became superintendent of missions for Manitoba and the Northwest Conference of the Methodist Church. And uh, people have forgotten what Methodism is, but of course it was an offshoot of the Anglican Church in the 18th century, founded by these brothers that gave us the name Wesley College, the Wesley Brothers. Um, and of course, it uh, had a huge impact on North America. Uh, John Wesley actually was a missionary to the United States uh, very early on in its history. But anyway, um, Methodism 
came west, uh, in many cases, um, in the person of Woodsworth's father, who was also called James. His father, in many ways, was, I like to say, uh, kind of colloquially, Mr. Methodism in Western Canada. Uh, James, the son, James Shaver Woodsworth, um, he was the eldest child. He was the, of course, firstborn son, and he was destined for the church. Rather than having just a religious message, the elder James Woodsworth also had a political message he was promoting in the West. Professor Mills points out that, of course, these two aren't mutually exclusive. One of Woodsworth's jobs as a Methodist missionary was to attempt to Christianize Indigenous peoples who lived on the plains, which was a key part of the Canadian government's attempt at colonizing the West. And Woodsworth Sr. very much saw his role as advancing the cause of Canadian expansion, including supporting the violent suppression of Indigenous resistance, such as the Canadian military response to the 1885 Métis Northwest Rebellion. His father is not just a theologian, his father is a politician expanding the new Canada in the West. And I think, you know, the young Woodsworth picks up the idea of a new emergent dynamic Canada. Although Woodsworth's political ambitions may have began early on, it wasn't until later in his life and after his time at Wesley College that he began to think more seriously about politics. Now, of course, the trajectory of Woodsworth's life is that he is going to follow his father into the church. This is a kind of destiny that he has. He goes to Wesley College, which his father has a hand in establishing. Woodsworth first started studying at Wesley College in 1891 at the age of 17 and graduated five years later. I think all that we can say about his time at Wesley College is that his intellectual curiosity is piqued. It is interesting in the final two years of Woodsworth, the son, being at Wesley College, um, it is that the actual building of Wesley College is taking place. Now we're going to pause Woodsworth's story for now and take a quick detour. But don't worry, we'll get back to him later. Before the building of Wesley Hall, that imposing castle-like structure on Portage Avenue that we all recognize, Wesley College had been teaching out of the Grace Methodist Church and other buildings around Winnipeg's inner city. But it quickly became clear that another solution was needed. At a certain point, Wesley College was doing so well that it decided to build this new building. So that was in the 1894 and it opened in 1896. It was reflective of uh, many different campuses across North America. And it's a style we call Romanesque. And what we mean by that is that it's a medieval revival style. This is Serena Kashavji, Associate Professor of History at the University of Winnipeg. She's researched the history of different buildings on campus, including the history of Wesley Hall. Wesley Hall is a, a building that was built in 1896, and it represents a 19th century model of education versus a 20th century model of education. So it is castellated in style. I always say it is actually physically, literally, the ivory tower. It's a castle, and it's a stone, rusticated stone castle. It's a beautiful building, but it's not a building that's very welcoming. I even feel sometimes intimidated going in there. I feel like I need to be invited before I go into that building. These Romanesque ivory tower style of buildings were common on university campuses built at that time. Professor Kashavji says that one notable example is Stanford University, where many of the first buildings were built in this style. 
Um, and you may be wondering why people would be building in a medieval style. So the 19th century is a very uh, eclectic period for architecture. It's moving into a modern period where there are all kinds of new technologies like steel, for example, that's allowing you to do different things. In the 1890s in Chicago, there were skyscrapers that had already been developed. Um, but people, you know, people were playing with these historical styles, and partly that's a tribute to the discipline of history. It's a sturdy building. It's a straightforward building for the time. It was meant to last. Uh, it's not too fancy, you know. It's a school. It's a kind of a, a working school, and um, and you know, it did last for a long time. Now back to James Shaver. After he graduated from Wesley College in 1896. Woodsworth became ordained as a Methodist minister and spent two years preaching at churches around Manitoba before moving abroad to continue his studies, first at Victoria College in the University of Toronto and later at Oxford University. It was while studying at Oxford that his interest in social welfare began, an interest that would shape the rest of his life. What happens, of course, eventually is that Woodsworth comes back to Winnipeg and starts living the life of a, of a, of a clergyman of course, it is that what happens to him personally is that he has a crisis of faith. Um, and he, in some senses, decides that he, he must cease to be a Methodist minister. He tries to get out of the church. He can't quite do it. But he instead turns his, his mind to social activism. And this is, I think, around 1909, uh, he becomes superintendent of missions at the All People's Mission on Stella Avenue in the north end of Winnipeg. And this is, uh, if you like, Woodsworth picking up on the general trend of the social gospel, which had been inside the church from the late 19th century. The social gospel was an influential social movement within Protestant churches that began in the late 19th century. Social gospelers applied Christian ethics to social problems, in particular, social justice issues, such as economic inequality, racial inequality, child exploitation, and lack of unionized workforces. Many important members of the social gospel movement were affiliated with Protestant schools, such as Wesley College. One was a fellow called Blewett, and the other were, was Salem Bland. Uh, and Bland, of course, went on to, um, to write a number of important books and also to get into trouble. Um, he wrote a very famous book called The New Christianity, and uh, basically what he said was that Christianity is the same as socialism. Um, I always, when I lectured on this, when I was teaching at University of Winnipeg, there's this wonderful quotation in which Bland says, he who preaches against public ownership is sinning against the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other words, to speak against socialism is to commit an unchristian sin. This is a pretty strong statement of um, the, his belief in socialism. Now, of course, uh, he was a critic of the First World War, as, as Woodsworth himself was. And Bland actually lost his job. Uh, you have to understand, I think, the early days of Wesley College, indeed quite well on into the time when it became United College II, uh, it is that the business community is effectively in charge of the college. It sits on the board of governors and has a kind of final say, I think, on what goes on in the place. Um, and it is that Bland offended the business community, and for his trouble, he was fired. Although Blewett and Bland were instructors at Wesley College after Woodsworth had graduated from the school, 
It's very likely that Woodsworth knew these men and other important figures in the social gospel movement while he was the superintendent of all people's mission. And he ended up being one of the most influential social gospelers of the early 20th century in Canada. If uh, Woodsworth is one of the great graduates of Wesley College, and if he indeed embodies the tradition of the social gospel, it is that Woodsworth then eventually finds his way out of the church. He engages in completely unadulterated politics. He runs for parliament in 1921. He's elected and continues to be re-elected from his Winnipeg seat until he dies in 1942. But just by chance, look that along the way, what he's done is he's found, helped establish the first socialist party in this country. And of course, what it does is introduce eventually into Canadian politics the importance of ideas like greater equality, a redistribution of wealth, public ownership or government ownership, a vast range of policies that are now, in some senses, central to our politics today. The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, or the CCF, was founded in 1932 by members of the so-called Ginger Group, members of parliament from a variety of progressive, socialist political parties, including Woodsworth. Now, although Woodsworth, of course, wasn't the sole creator of the CCF, he was the party's first leader, and Professor Mills emphasizes his influence on Canadian politics of the 20th century, including the creation of the New Democratic Party after the CCF was dissolved in 1961. You know, we can say that this one man, nonetheless, had a huge monumental effect upon the country. Um, not always right, not always wise, but for the most part, generally pushing the country towards, I think, a deeper sense of justice and fairness and equity and so on. Uh, this is a huge achievement, it seems to me. You know, you can't make sense of the emergence of Ed Schreier in 1969 as the first NDP Premier of Manitoba without an understanding that before that was the CCF and the CCF is the brainchild of Woodsworth. That guy he mentioned at the end, Ed Schreier, just so happens to also be a collegiate grad. He attended in the 1950s when the school was called United College Collegiate and graduated in 1954. Ed Schreier was Premier of Manitoba from 1969 to 1977, and as Professor Mills said, he was the province's first NDP Premier. He later served as Governor General of Canada from 1979 to 1984. But just because J.S. Woodsworth helped build Canada's Social Democratic Party and inspired generations of progressive politics, doesn't mean that all of Woodsworth's beliefs would be viewed as progressive by today's standards. I pulled out from a speech that he gave in Parliament once when he said that um, what were called homosexuals would one day be subject to a surgical operation that would cure them. Now, we have moved beyond that, I think, uh, and rightly so. Um, but that's one of the kinds of things uh, that Woodsworth believed that we have now come to see as, well, a thing of the past. On the indigenous issue, there's no doubt in my mind that Woodsworth believed that um, the best future for indigenous people was for them to become English-speaking. Professor Mills says that Woodsworth held an assimilationist view of indigenous peoples, believing it would be better if indigenous communities assimilated into white society. 
He didn't speak out against residential schools, which we now know were horrific institutions that have been referred to as a cultural genocide. And he also advocated for eugenics, an outdated social philosophy that aimed to quote-unquote improve the human population by actively excluding people based on their race and ability. How do we make sense of all this? Can we then see in our heroes people with flaws and feet of clay sometimes? Is that possible? If it's not possible, then indeed maybe we shouldn't put a statue up to anybody. I mean, in some of the debates I've had with people, I, I say, look, if you are serious about ending colonialism, you should change the name of Wesley, Wesley Hall to something else. John Wesley was famous for going off to, I think it was Georgia, to somehow preach to American blacks and slaves that they should become Christian. I mean, the whole idea of Christianizing Western Canada, Woodsworth's father's project, is about creating a kind of um, assimilation of indigenous people, removing them or pulling them away from their traditional religion uh, to embrace the new white man's religion. In this way, we can see that the settler colonial world into which Wesley Hall and the Collegiate were born remains relevant today in the lives and legacies of the school's graduates and the stories we remember about this institution. My plan is I get my three-year degree here, sociology, and then I'm going to work for a nonprofit organization. There's a school in Victoria that's um, specifically for Indigenous law, and I think like to help out communities. So eventually when I get a little more experience out here, I want to go out there and then get that degree there. But I think like Indigenous youth, Indigenous children, they're a big part of Canada. They're a big part of here in Manitoba. And you know, it kind of relates back to that whole model school program. Like I was that Indigenous youth that had that opportunity. So I think doing like, not necessarily social work, but implementing programs that are gonna help Indigenous youth, you know, have that opportunity, have that employment, be able to play sports even, like that's, that's what my main goal is. That was episode one of Hallowed Halls. On this episode, we heard from Alan Mills, retired political science professor at the University of Winnipeg. To learn more about J.S. Woodsworth, you can read his book called Fool for Christ, The Intellectual Politics of J.S. Woodsworth. On this episode, we also heard from Serena Kashavji, associate professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, as well as Ian Elliott, Iraq Levasseur, Susan Thompson, Dan Diamond, Joseph Tafisa, and Parminder Gill. We'll hear a lot more from all of them in future episodes of this podcast. The music you heard on this episode is by Lee Rosevere. For links to all the songs featured on this episode and to learn more about Lee Rosevere, check out the show notes. This podcast is produced by me, Isaac Werman, with the support from Dean Kevin Clace and Associate Dean Bonnie Talbot of the University of Winnipeg Collegiate. We acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 1 territory, ancestral lands of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We also acknowledge that our water is sourced from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation. Tune into the next episode to learn about the creation of United College, 
and what the collegiate was like in the early 20th century, including an interview with another important graduate. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. Talk to you next time.